Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, you know, even though we're not in any sort of formal sweeps period, we have certainly seen some intense drama playing out on screen these days. You know, Bold and Beautiful has really been on a roll since the Baby Beth reveal, and we just saw Thomas fall over the cliff and finally wake up just in time to clear Brooke of any wrongdoing. And there have been some super intense scenes between Torsten Kay and Catherine Kelly Lang as Ridge and Brooke. And, you know, like Brad Bell has certainly kept his promise to use more of his vets. You know, we've already seen the on-screen return of Don Diamond and Heather Tom, as well as John McCook and Rena Sofer. And, you know, for as much as Hope's story dominated the canvas for the first part of 2019, there has been some incredible payoff. Yeah, what you really want in a soap story is that its end yields the onset of something like new and juicy mm-hmm. and B&B basically put all its eggs in the basket of the baby switch. And I honestly didn't know like where it would go from here. I figured there would be fallout among Hope, Liam and Steffi, but it's so satisfying that the ripple effect has pulled in so many other characters. I feel like we're really seeing now how adding Flo and Shauna to the mix has facilitated that mm-hmm. because totally <laughs> like Flo pulls Wyatt more into the story and Shauna pulls Quinn more into the story. Um, and as you noted, there is a lot going on with Ridge and Brooke at long last. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, over a days, we saw the face-off, uh, pun intended, of <laughs> Kristen getting busted at John and Marlena's party, which also was definitely worth the wait. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the Nicole-Kristen showdown when she returns to Salem. And, you know, based on really what I'm reading for the rest of September for this show, it is going to be really can't miss. Um, there will be a lot of unexpected twists from head writer Ron Carlovati. So keep tuning in to Days. Yeah, you were very excited when when you, you saw some of what was coming up. <laughs> I know. I was a little jelly. Uh, you got to read it. Uh, I would say that GH feels like it has action on several fronts right now as well. Um, like, you know, Franco getting Drew's memories and the mess that has created and the reveal that Peter was in cahoots with Helena. I am actually really happy to see the darker side of Peter reemerge mm-hmm. because he's been – dare I say, kind of dweeby for the last (laughs) little while. And I'm really into the dynamic we're seeing, particularly of Robert Scorpio being, like, out to prove that Peter is no more a good guy than Faison was. Like, that's the content I'm here for. Right. Um, And then Y&R has Adam and Victor's war heating up and Billy's gum-chewing alternate (laughs) personality. So it it does all feel very sweepsy, which is a good thing. 
Oh, and also the Grand Phoenix Hotel opening. It's going to be quite fireworks filled. Mm -hmm. So tune in for that on YNR. Um, so, you know, our guest today is Vincent Irizarry, who has certainly made his way around the dial from Guiding Light to YNR to All My Children and Days, and now as Bold and Beautiful's Dr. Jordan Armstrong. So you and I have talked about the benefit of hiring actors who are familiar, fan faves, which Vincent certainly is, and also bringing in talent who can hit the ground running, you know, with the fast pace of soaps. But what's so interesting about Vincent is that he really has been able to go from show to show without carrying the baggage of the other characters he had played. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And, and that isn't like the easiest of feats. We've certainly seen it done before, but it doesn't always work. And I wonder if his choice of character has played a role in that success because he has played against type most of the time. Like he started out as this iconoclastic kind of street punk on Guiding Light and his next soap role was a far more polished doctor. And when he returned to Guiding Light, he was playing Lou Jack's twin, but Nick was like a different personality type and he'd grown up differently. He was a journalist who was like close with his family. Um, and then he really dove deep into the role of, of sort of a classic soap villain when he then went to All My Children is David Hayward, who would really stop at nothing, hello libidazone, uh, to get what he wanted, which was more often than not a woman. Uh, and I think he was so good at it that moving forward, he was like sought out for villain roles. I know, and it's funny to see that he really has played so many. I mean, we don't know that much right now about Dr. Armstrong, but I'm sure that we will get to know him. So let's get Vincent on the phone and hear about his very long and wonderful soap journey. Hi, Vincent. Hey, how you doing, Stephanie? Hi, Mar. How you doing? Hi, we're good. Thanks for joining Excellent. us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's nice to talk with both of you again. It's been a while. Yes, yeah. it has been. Well, first of all, welcome back to Daytime. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. It's really nice to be uh, back into the fold again. It's great. And well, tell us about getting the call from Bold and Beautiful and how the role of Dr. Jordan Armstrong came about. Well, from what I understand is that um, it was Brad Bell contacted my manager or he had his office contact my manager and they said they had this role coming up. Um, it was a recurring role. And if I wanted it, it was mine. Um, so that's basically how it happened. And I was, it was a few days later, I was on the set and um, it was first was six episodes the first week. And then they went on hiatus for, for a month. And then I've been back several times since. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it was great. It was a really nice surprise. It was wonderful. It was one of the shows I had not done yet. <laughs> so I've done quite a few of them. Um, so, and I, I, it's the great part about it is for me is that I've been in this medium for so many years. I've worked with so many people that have bounced around to different shows, whether it's actors, uh, people in the production staff, people, the directors, writers, producers, um, the crew, I, I just, I, I go onto a soundstage and I seem to know probably about 30% of the people there. That's so great. yeah, it's really nice. It's, it's wonderful. And, you know, it's always, it's, it's like one big family, one big repertory company, you know, to get around and, and work with people. Um, having the opportunity to work with some of the actors on this show that I've never worked with before. Um, John McCook the other day was wonderful. He, um, actually gave me a really nice bottle of scotch after we did our scene. Oh, classy. Um, yeah. He called me at my dressing room and said, do you, do you drink scotch? I said, 
yeah, I do drink scotch sometimes. Why? And he goes, well, somebody gave me a bottle of scotch that um, I'm not going to drink, and I'd love to give it to you. I said, all right, I'll be right down. Wow. So I went down and he gave it to me. Love that. So that was, that was very sweet. I mean, I've certainly I've known John of John for many, many years, and he and I were, I believe we were nominated the same time when I was a Deimos at that time. I think we were both in that same category yeah. that year. Um, or it was the year before maybe he was nominated. I can't remember. But, yeah, so and I, I've certainly known him, and, Catherine Kelly Lang, I've known her for many years, I've seen her work. I've never worked with her, so it's been really great working with her and Heather Tom as well. Um, I worked with her brother, but I've never worked with her. Um, you know, but certainly I've worked with Torsten and with Don Diamant, and so it's it's great, you know. Um, especially like when I first started on All My Children, it was a three-month job. It felt like it was the, you know, the All My Children fantasy camp. Go and work with everybody for three months. <laughs> And then be on your way, and that turned into 14 years. So you never know. Um, I'm going to need to hear a lot more about your reunion with Torsten Kay, who was your nemesis on All My Children. We yeah. saw pictures, and it just filled my Pine Valley heart. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. It was great seeing Torsten again. It was wonderful getting to work with him again. And I'll tell you, I mean, I because I've been watching the show since I've been on it and seeing what's what's going on with the stories. And he, he is doing such a wonderful job. He's doing, I, I love what he's bringing to this role and to these, to these scenes. I told him and Catherine Kelly the other day that um, the, the scenes that they did in the hospital where he was trying to get her to explain how it happened with Thomas. Mm-hmm. And she was telling him, she was convinced that he was threatening her, um, her daughter. And it was an accident. She didn't intentionally mean to push him over the cliff, but that she was pushing him away. And then her daughter shows up afterwards and tells her, but he wasn't threatening me. He was apologizing to me and you misinterpreted the situation. And it was that whole, all those scenes, they played it so beautifully. It was, it was just very, everything was contained. Everything was very, very clear and very focused with each other. And it just, it was really wonderful. I, I thought the scenes just played beautifully. And they I, were. I, I loved they were it. Great. Yeah. Um, so playing a doctor, not new for you. <laughs> what's right. it like? What's it like to put on a medical coat again? Well, it's, um, it is kind of funny. This is my third doctor now in daytime. Um, I haven't, I've yet to play a lawyer, which is kind of interesting. You would think that I would play both of them occasionally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've played doctors on three shows now. Santa Barbara, obviously all my children know this one, but it, um, it never gets easy with the medicalese. I will say that because there are all, so many different types of ailments. Not everybody has the same thing. So every <laughs> time I'm like doing something, I'm having to learn new terminology constantly, whether it's cerebral edema, you know, <laughs> subcranial hematomas and all this other stuff. And chief of nephrology and i'm like okay um <laughs> and i had i had scenes actually the other day um i had it was probably my my most substantive uh script i had so much material and i had like a, a seven page scene and most of us i was literally driving the scene with about seven people um but it was all it was paragraph after paragraph of all this medical lease and I was happy to say I did it in one take. It was great. But, man, I, a lot of work put it, was put into that. I had to. Because um, it's not something that comes trippingly off the tongue, obviously. Right. So, But it's it's always fun. And I love working. So why not? It's okay. Bring it on. All right. So 
let's now take a deep dive into your daytime credits, Vincent. Um, okay. So you began your career as Brandon Lujak Luvanacek on Guiding Light yes. back in yeah. 1983. Uh, Lujak was it back then. Yeah. Tell us what you remember about getting your first daytime job and your early years on the show. You know, it's interesting because I, I can't help but reflect on that occasionally because Lou Jack really was foundational for the rest of my career, especially in daytime. Um, that was it was a three day role. It was a three day role. I went and auditioned for Betty Ray, <clears throat> and um, and I, I see immediately that the character is obviously who's sort of this rebellious maverick type, um, kind of a punk kid. And I went in to audition for her. And in the scenes, she was supposed to be, it was a scene between Lou Jack and um, Mindy. And he follows her into the ladies' room. Um, and he's hitting on her in the ladies' room, basically. <clears throat> so I I got up and I literally laid across Betty Ray's desk. <laughs> she was behind the desk. <laughs> and I took out a cigarette, lit the cigarette, was hanging out talking to her, smoking a cigarette and improvising with her. And she went with it. And we were doing it, um, went went back in and out of the scene, the, the dialogue. And then afterwards, she goes, um, would you just hold on for a second? She went and got um, Gail Colby, who was the executive producer. She goes, let's do it again. So we did it again. It was a little diff- different because there was some improvisation involved. And afterwards, she was like, oh, that was great. Thank you. Thank you. I left. I, w- I had just started a job at Joe Allen's in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been trailing for a few days. It was going to be my first day having my own shift as a waiter there. And my agent calls me at the the bar phone um, at Joe Allen's before the shift starts and tells me that I got the part. And I was like, wow, that's great. I got the part. That's fantastic. And everybody there's like, well, you're going to still work here? I said, it's a three-day job. I'm, yeah, I need a gig. I need the gig. Um and it just was, it was ironic because there was a woman, and I don't remember who it was, a woman who was on Guiding Light for years, and she had just been let go off the show. She was there that night, and she was in my station, and somebody introduced me to her and mentioned it to her that I was going on the show. And I don't remember who she was, but she wasn't that friendly, to be honest with you. <laughs> she, seemed like she, was still, she seemed like she was still kind of reeling from the fact that she wasn't on the show anymore. So it wasn't like she was, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Um, she was like, oh, okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, that's, that's nice. Good luck to you. And it was it. So, but it was that kind of a thing. And, I, and then I got three days more. And they liked what I brought to it. So they offered me a contract. And... And I mean it when I say that it was foundational because, as you know, I mean, that character really took off. It was kind of like a phenomenon. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, it was. I was living in a rooming house in New York City, um, sharing a kitchen and a bathroom with six other people on my floor in Greenwich Village. And um, it became, uh, you know, all of a sudden it was like there were and that was when there was my phone was my phone number still in the phone book. I was sometimes getting calls on my answer machine from people around the country. (laughs) Wow. Uh, You know, yeah, it was crazy. Even from prisons. (laughs) That was kind of weird, too. Um, It was. I'm serious. So it was um, it was a real it was a total change for me. It was it was a seismic shift in my life. Um, even going to the first Emmys, I was thinking about that recently. I went to the first Emmys was at the Waldorf Astoria and that year, it was in 1984. And 
I was overwhelmed. I mean, walking through the lobby because they had the fans on both sides, walking down the center. And it was just so, it was like sensory overload. I, I was kind of a little withdrawn, taken, freaked out by it, frankly. Um, but yeah, I've probably been to like 20, 25 of them since then. Um, they've <laughs> changed dramatically. Oh, they, have. <laughs> they really have. We don't have to go too deep into that, but they have. Um, so it, and since that time, every role that I've done on daytime has, has been offered to me. I've never auditioned for another role and that's fantastic. Um, that was my only audition for a daytime soap was for Lou Jack for three days. So it's pretty cool. And here we are. Totally. Very cool. Um, yeah. Now you worked so closely with Beverly McKenzie as Alexandra yeah. and Judy Evans as yeah. Beth in the early years. So first yes. tell us about your relationship with Beverly. What was that like? It was wonderful. I love Beverly. I really did. We hit it off immediately. Uh, and uh, in all honesty, I didn't know her. I didn't know who, her work um, because I wasn't watching daytime at the time when I first got the job. And when people, when she was hired and coming on, everybody was like, oh my gosh, your mother is going to be Beverly McKenzie. I was like, oh, that's great. Who is she? And she says, you don't know who she is. She's like, She's the only person that was ever given credit above the title of a show in Texas. You know, she was like, um, it's, it, she was basically an icon in, in the media, in the medium. Um, but when she came on, we hit it off immediately. And she was, she was like, we had sort of a, a mother, daughter, mother, mother, son, sorry, relationship. I, um, I always used to tease her son, Scott, even to this day, I'll say, well, you know, you do realize that I was her favorite son. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, and I was there when he first was training to be a director. She got him that position there. He was trailing to become a director on the show at the time. Um, but I, I did, I loved her. And I think if anything, what I missed the most about Beverly was her laugh. She had a very unique laugh and <clears throat> she had opened up to me about some personal things in her life throughout the years or her career and um, relationships that she had had and, um, you know, her past. And it was just, she was just very open with me and I would go spend time with her in her condo in Manhattan sometimes um, after work and hang out with her. I, I loved her. I really did. She was fantastic. Um, and I know that when she left, it was, it took everybody by surprise. I was shocked. I, I, I don't know if you know the story about that, but it literally happened like in, in a snap of a finger. She basically gave her notice and she, she had she had a two week notice and she had a one month um, vacation slot every year. So she gave her notice after our last scenes that it was the scenes were after a whole year of storyline where Nick McHenry was not accepting her as his mother didn't want to believe the truth that his parents basically were given me as uh, him, Nick, as, as a child, um, after Alexandra gave birth to twins, he didn't want to believe it, you know? And after a whole year, he finally acknowledged her as his mother. And it was these very emotional scenes. And afterwards, um, Beverly, everybody's like, have a great vacation. We'll see you soon. She goes, no, you won't. <laughs> and she's like, what? And people are like, what do you mean? She goes, well, I'm, I'm giving my notice. I'm done. This is my last scene. I was like, Beverly, what? She says, yeah, um, yeah, I have a month off and I have two week notice and need to give them. So I'm giving to them now. 
And Bruce Barry, the director, comes walking on set with the producers, and they're all there to, you know, wish her well on her trip. And he says, well, you know, so happy for you. Have a great time. We'll see you when you get back. And she says, no, you won't. He goes, what are you talking about? So she says, he's leaving. And he looks at me. I said, she's, she's leaving. And she's, he's like, okay. Um, and the producer's like, really? And she says, yeah, look at the contract. It says this. And she like, that was it. She left. That was the end of it. Um, so I think she took total, everybody totally by surprise about that. <laughs> that was a shocker. Um, I can't even but, imagine that happening today. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people started paying more attention to the fine print in contracts after that. But I have That's to, true. I mean, what a baller move. My goodness. I, I know. I know. It, it was kind of like a soap dish type of move. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. It was like <laughs> the whole crew, everybody was like, what's going on? And it was like, and we had these amazing emotional scenes that, that day. It was like, and after it was done, I was like, this is it. We're done working together. She's gone. She's not coming back. Um, I will say this, I, given the, the, the enormity of her presence on that show and as that character and just her, just her overall performance, um, as an actress, I would have thought that it would have been impossible to find somebody that could fill her shoes. And I think that Marge Doucet did a fantastic job coming on, um, replacing her. That was a tough one. You know, that was really tough. Um, and I just spoke with Marge actually about, um, about three weeks ago, I, I gave her a call, um, to say hi and just to see how she's doing. It's been a few years since I've spoken to her and I just want to check in with her. Oh, I love that. But yeah. Yeah. It was really nice to talk with her. And, um, I, I might actually try and see her when I get into New York next week, if I'm going to be in the city long enough, I, or I told her I would try and do that. So just to, just to spend some time with her. Um, yeah, she, she really did. She did an amazing job that those are, those are like really tough shoes to fill, you know? Um, so I was really happy. And then she got to be my mother again on all my children, which is crazy. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that was that. And what do you remember about, about, uh, working with then equally new to daytime Judy Evans? Oh, Judy. Um, you know, I, again, with us, we hit it off immediately. I, Judy, is she is, she's very easy to work opposite. You can immediately get keyed into her um, and just be there in the moment with her. Um, and I love the contrast of characters, you know, the way it was set up. Um, she was the girl next door. He was this rebel, you know, out there, rebel rouser and troublemaker and um, and I, and I also for myself as a young actor, I loved the sort of, it was, it was kind of ironic that I was there doing that type of a show because I did not see myself, especially in my earlier years as a typical, um, looking soap actor. You know, I didn't have the chiseled good looks and the wall to wall muscles on the forehead and chest and, I, you know, I didn't, I was really kind of a scrawny little guy. I mean, with, you know, I was basically like, you know, a, a oh, nose you were no hair. slouch, Vincent. You were so Come cute, on. Vincent. <laughs> no, it. I was. I, I look at those old videos, the first, or the earliest ones, 
And especially when I was wearing that stupid fedora, they were dressing us <laughs> like we were supposed to be from the Michael Jackson beaded video. It was terrible with those pastel colors and suspenders. I'm like, what were they thinking? I was the one that cut the sleeves at least and made a cut around the, the neckline. Cause I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I did. I did that with all my T-shirts. I, mean, I was a low-budget character on the show when I first came on. They didn't spend any money on wardrobe. Um, so, but I, I did, when I first went on there, I look at those, I look at those videos and I do, I look like a nose with hair and a hat. And I was like, that's it. I was, I was like, like 40 pounds less than I am today. Um, I was scrawny. I was like the prototypical starving actor, you know, living in New York city. Um, so it was interesting coming on there and doing that with, with Judy. I just loved the contrast of characters, um, between us. And I, and I thought it was a fantastic part of the story, too, that here she was, the girl next door, but she had been violated, you know, by her stepfather. And that added another really deep, emotional, it was kind of a profound quality in her character that she was hiding, the shame of that. And my character and bringing that out. And um, I mean, it's honestly, even just thinking of it today, it's kind of it makes me a little emotional because it's that's a pretty intense thing to have to be caring um for her for her character and i she just did a beautiful job with it and I, so it was really easy to key into that with her um and i i just felt like we really found something very special together the two of us um which i, I will forever be grateful for honestly it was very special so yeah well so what prompted your own decision to leave guiding light in 1985 you know, it was the thing when I first started that show. Um, and I, it, it, first of all, there's, there's a great irony in my life um, where my career is concerned. When I was a young kid, my grandparents watched soaps. Okay. They, the two shows were General Hospital and Days of Our Lives. Those were the two shows they would watch every day. My grandfather's a carpenter and upholsterer, and he, he had his workshop in, in the basement. That's where he worked throughout his life, pretty much. So whenever it was time for lunch, they, he would, they, my grandmother would make lunch and they would sit in front of the TV. It was before they had a VCR or anything like that, certainly no DVRs. So you had to watch it when it aired. So they, he would come upstairs and he'd have lunch to Days of Our Lives. And then he would take another break later on <clears throat> to sit and watch General Hospital. So my whole young life, hang, spending time with my grandparents, every time I'd walk through the living room at those times of day, they'd be sitting there watching the soap operas. So I equated soap operas as a young boy with like old people's television shows. Okay. That's what they did. They watched soap operas and they were both from Sicily, you know, so they had, they were there. They were probably even learning English to some degree watching it. Um, when I got older, my older brother is that when I was in high school, my older brother and my older sister got hooked into the Luke and Laura story. Okay. So now I'm walking through the, my living room in the afternoon and my brother and sister are watching general hospital, watching Luke and Laura. <clears throat> I'm like, I'm walking by going, you guys are a bunch of losers. You're <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, what are you guys watching? Oh no, it's a great. Oh my gosh. And then he tells me that, tell me this. Oh, you should really watch it. I'm, going, I'm not going to watch it. Goodbye. Take care. <laughs> I'm going, I'm out of here. Um, so that was it. So years later, um, when I was, a young actor in New York, I was auditioning a lot and I kept getting really close to things like Broadway shows between me and like one other person. 
I, I had screen tested with Francis Ford Coppola for The Outsiders, and it was like a whole day of um, improvisations in a dance studio on 19th and Broadway. With, it was a whole Saturday afternoon with a whole room filled with people. It was like Tom Cruise before he was like Tom Cruise, and Emilio Estevez was there. I remember Patrick Swayze was there, C. Thomas Howell, all the people, Matt Dillon was there. A bunch of people from it was like everybody from Teen Beat to Magazine was in that room, <laughs> and we spent the whole day improvising and being put on tape, and it was it was going great. I was really happy with it. And at the end of the day, Fred Roos, who was a producer for Coppola, in fact, he's the one that found Harrison Ford. He came up to me. He goes, "Listen, it's, it, um, Francis loves what you're doing, but he's not going to be able to use it." I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Because you look too much like Vincent Spano." And he just filmed the Black Stallion Returns with him. And I'm like, I don't even know who he is. Vincent goes, yeah, well, you really do look a lot like him. <clears throat> and um, and he, so he said, can't use you right now. So I was like, I left there dejected. I was like, oh, man, what a drag. So after that time, I was I kept getting close to things. And um, Another World, I auditioned for Another World at the time. And when they they were interested in me, they wanted me to do a test option deal with a three-year contract. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do a soap right now for three years. I don't want to do it. And the casting director got very upset with my agents for submitting me um, at the time. <clears throat> and when Guiding Light came around, because it was only a three-day job, I decided, yeah, okay, I'll do this for three days and three days more. And I really liked it. I liked the character. I thought sort of potential in the character. So I decided to do a contract. And um, But I made a commitment to myself right when I signed that contract. It was a two-year contract. And I said, I'm only going to do it for two years because I honestly felt that it was at the time of my life where it was time to take chances. You know, I didn't have – I wasn't married. I didn't have children. I just had to provide for myself. And I thought after two years, no matter what's going on, I'm leaving. And it was a really hard decision to leave after two years because they were, I, I had come on as my first TV job ever. I had only done theater for six years. So my earliest contract was pretty close to the minimum for a, for a contract player. And they were truly, literally tripling my income. Um, <laughs> yeah, per they must have been throwing yeah. money at you for sure they did for one more year it was only one year they, they they were asking me to stay and it was they were tripling my per episode income you know from that point pay and my agent's like what are you talking about you have to do this and i said oh, no i made a commitment to myself i'm not going to do it i can't i can't do it so that's i left and um i i still think it was a good decision i it was a hard thing financially to do but I left and I immediately got the movie of the week with Nancy McKeon. It was called Firefighter. I did that. I literally left from that, came, flew back from Vancouver, and then left for um, Camp Pendleton to do Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood. Then after that, I did – this is all in one year. I did um, – uh, was L.A. Law. I did that, and I did a, a mini-series up in Toronto called Echoes in the Darkness, a Joseph Wambach mini-series. And I just ran into Gary Cole recently, and he and I worked together all those years ago. Actually, I have a picture with him. It was at the TV Academy I had recently that I just took with him. And it was kind of a – I didn't know if he'd remember me. We worked together. We had a really great scene in Toronto. This is 1986, and he immediately remembered me. And he said, yeah, yeah we worked together. Didn't we? And he was like, holy crap, I didn't think you'd remember me from that many years ago. Um, so, yeah, so it was a good first year. 
but it was tough. It was a tough decision. I just, but I stuck with my commitment. That was it, basically. So how did Santa Barbara lure you back to daytime as your first doctor, Dr. Scott Clark, uh, oh in gosh. 1987? <clears throat> well, the, um, after I left Guiding Light, it was in, the, in December of 85, I came out to L.A., and at first, the first thing I did the first day uh, um, that night after I finished the show, I got on a plane and went to Paris for two weeks um, by myself. And um, when I came back, Harley Kozak, I was going, I came out to Los Angeles in December. Harley Kozak had invited me to the Santa Barbara uh, Christmas party or holiday party at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> it was the first, their first holiday party. And um, I'm trying to remember her name. She was a producer on the show, and she went off to do um, the Hilton um, reality show. Um, I can't remember her name right now, but I think she's passed. She was one of the producers on um, Santa Barbara at the time, and she came up to me at the party. I had just left playing Lou Jack. I think I was probably still airing. And she came up to me. She said, if you ever want to go back on a daytime show, please let us know. We'd love to have you. And um, I can't remember. It's so frustrating. I can't remember her name. But um, Wait, yeah, I'm she, trying to Google it because it's it's making me insane that I, I, I know exactly who you're talking about as well. Yes. And I feel, and I want to be able to honor at least her memory and, and name. But um, yeah, she came up to me at that time. <clears throat> she said, you know, if you ever want to come back on a day, please let us know. And I, I thought at the time I didn't know what I was going to do. But two years after I had left Guiding Light, um, I, I missed the steady work. I was bouncing around and getting a, a job here, a job there. But I really missed the steady work. And I spoke to my agent at the time, who's still in my life. He's my manager now. Um, I spoke to him about it. And he said, well, you want me to at least give her a call and just see you know, if what if she was serious or what the what possibilities there might be. So he called her, and she said, "Okay, let me get back to you. I'll get back to you by the end of the day." She literally called back a few hours later and offered me a contract without a character. Wow. And it was the and she met with the quote that I had was being offered on Guiding Light two years earlier, uh, per episode, and we didn't they didn't have a character yet. So he said, she told me about it. And I said, all right, let's see. Let's, I said, let's make not, let's not make the commitment yet. Let's find out what the character is going to be. So she was open to that. And um, I went and met with uh, Robin Mattson because they were thinking about putting me together with her. So we did some scenes that they had written for us together just to see. And it went well, you know, they liked it. They liked what I brought to it and it was my first doctor role. So there you go. <laughs> Dr. Scott Clark. Um, so yeah, so I did that for two years, that show. That's how that started. Vincent, um, I think her name was Mary Ellis. Mary Ellis Bunum. Oh, that's yes. it. Yeah. She did real yeah, world, yeah. That's right? what I was going yeah. yeah, real world. That's what it was. Mary yeah. Ellis Bunum. She's mm -hmm. the one and she's the one that came up to me at the, the Playboy Mansion and introduced herself to me and, and she followed through on it. Um, and it was crazy because it was also the show. I don't remember if, if you, I don't know if you remember, but you probably do. Um, it was owned by the, the who the people the, the Dobsons. Dobsons. The Dobsons. I was the last decision that they had made 
before they left to go on a trip to Thailand. And when they left to go to a trip, trip to Thailand, they lost the show. NBC and New World took the show away from them. I don't know if you remember that. Uh-huh. Of course. We but call they, that the reverse McKinsey. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. It was, it was crazy. It was literally that the last thing that they had done was watch the video of the scenes that I had done with Robin Matson, And they said, okay, yeah, give him that role. That sounds like that's the, that's the role. Let's give it to him. So, and then they got in the limo and left the studio and that was it. And I never worked with them. I came on the show and it was all of a sudden it was Jill and Farron Phelps and, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of other people that were there that came resurfaced back into my life many years later um, on other shows. So it's kind of strange. That's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. I know. Um, well, you also starred in maybe one of my favorite novelists uh, miniseries. Uh, <laughs> it was Lucky Chances, based yeah. on Jackie Collins's novel. Um, and yeah. like that cast was insane. It was Nicolette Sheridan, Sandra Bullock, Eric Braden yeah. was in it. Um, yeah. What was that experience like for you? That was awesome. I, I had a great time on that show, and I loved Jackie. Was what an amazing woman. I just, her presence, she had such a sort of an effervescent presence about her spirit. She was always so positive and just very encouraging and very, she just, she's a beautiful woman inside and out. I, I saw her again years later when she came to be interviewed on The View. And I was obviously working right next door at all my children. So I went over to see her and it was just great to be reunited with her again. And I, I was always so grateful because she was, she was so um, vocal about her support of me as an actor um, throughout the years, even years later, she just was constantly, um, you know, touting my, 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 my uh, performance and um, my talent. And I, and that's a wonderful thing to have when you have somebody at that level that is constantly reminding people about their, uh, their appreciation of your work. That's just, that's wonderful. You know, um, I, I adored her. I really did. And I, I probably, honestly, I, I had a little crush on Sandra Bullock as well. Um, <laughs> I couldn't help. She was beautiful, this beautiful young woman, um, and getting to work opposite her and then watch to see what happened with her career was pretty extraordinary. I think she's fantastic. Um, but she was, she was just a consummate professional, but just very sweet. Um, we had fun in, in, during our scenes and even in between the scenes, she was great. Um, yeah, it was a great, uh, you know, had, had an amazing cast. It, Stephanie Beecham was in the two and a bunch of people. Um, and that was the I'm height of miniseries really, you know, when they it were really was. such a big deal. They really were. And it was, and I, and it was such a great role to get, um, to play it. The hardest part about the role, though, to be honest with you, was the aging, because I aged in 11 different increments from 24 to 64. Mm -hmm. um, and it was um, it was a lot of makeup. It was tough. I mean, we would start taping us to filming at like 9 a.m., but I would be there at four or five o'clock in the morning sometimes getting wow. ready for the first shot. And I have to, if they would always start with the older first so that they could take it down mm -hmm. rather than put it on. And I, so it'd start like usually at 64 or 59, wherever the oldest was for that day, and then progressively take it down to my younger years. So there were times I was, and this is no joke, I was in makeup for combined maybe seven, eight hours between putting makeup on and taking it off. That's crazy. And my 
yeah, my face was kind of raw at the end of that that shoot. It was tough. And it was really hard because it was in the summer. It was in the heat of the summer. And we were shooting for a couple weeks in Vegas. And we were shooting outside in Vegas with this rubber and glue on my face. And there were days it was like 112 degrees, 115 degrees with this hot air blown on you felt like you were in the inner machinations of a blow dryer. <laughs> and I, and I would literally be out there. We'd be doing the scenes. I remember doing a scene with Michael Nader in the desert and, um, it seems going great. And all of a sudden they cut it in the middle of the scene. I'm going, what, what's going on? I says, your face is melting. And I was like, what? Oh man. And it was literally like, you could see like my face is just like start to droop on one side. They're like rushing me into a, a, a van with like air conditioning up all the way. And, trying to patch my face back up, you know, it was tough. That was the toughest part of it, but I loved it. I had a great time. Um, Alan Rosenberg, I ran into him recently who played my best friend in, in the movie and who became, went on to become the president of SAG years later. I don't know how the hell that happened. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you'd think it, you'd it, be yeah. automatically disqualified from having played your friend. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. No, I just I, I just look at something like that. It's like, how does somebody become like a president of SAG? And it's like, I, they wake up one day and say, I want to be the president of SAG. I don't know. It just seems like an interesting place to like end up in, you know? I could see certainly like Ed Asner doing it, but uh, right. it's kind of weird. Um, you know, I, but, and I just, I did run into him. I ran into him about five months ago and it was great to see him. Uh, but it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful cast, had a great time working on it. I even ran into Nicholas Sheridan probably about um, eight months ago um, in, in Los Angeles. Hadn't seen her in years. I feel like um, you could have like a who's who. I mean, your Instagram alone, I feel like is a who's who. Yeah, who you totally. pictures with and then. I know. Wait, That's true. when was the last time you ran into Sandra Bullock? Oh, uh, I haven't. I, have, I haven't run into her at all in all these years. In all Come these on, years. universe. Um, let's make that happen. Yeah, and another person, honestly, which is kind of, I, this is pretty adorable, frankly. Um, Marissa Tomei, when I was doing Blue Jack, um, there were makeup artists that were working both on As the World Turns and on Guiding Light. This was CBS. And Marissa was on As the World Turns, and a lot of people don't even realize this, but she was on there at the same time as Julianne Moore, Meg Ryan, and Parker Posey. I mean, it was like crazy, the fact that these women were on that show at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember playing softball with them, you know, when we would have our, you know, right. inter show <laughs> games. Um, but Marissa Tomei, uh, the makeup artist, was constantly telling me that she had this crush on me when I was Lucia. She was like, oh, she would, every time you were like on the monitor, she'd come running into the makeup room and watch you. <laughs> I said, oh, that's so cute. That's adorable. So <clears throat> she was a few years younger than I, I am. Um, and, one, and then that, that year at the Emmys, we, there was a party at the Copacabana, all right, in New York. And every time I, like, turn around, I could see her, like, hiding behind something, <laughs> looking at me. And then finally I walked up to her and said, hi, you're Marissa, right? And we I started talking. Because, yeah. So we were talking. And we were, like, hanging out, just talking that night. And we were, um, I was going to go home and I had a condo in, in the, in the village at that time. Um, that was after my boarding house, rooming house. <laughs> <laughs> I was living in a condo in Greenwich village on Hudson street. And she was going back to Brooklyn. She lived in Brooklyn with her friends that were with her, hanging out with her. And, and they offered me a ride. So I said, sure, that's great. So they were driving me down and she was talking about that she wasn't sure if she was going to stay with acting or go to college. 
that she was considering going to college at the time, um, but she had certainly, she's been working as an actress and she was considering maybe going out to Los Angeles. And we were talking about it and I just told her, I said, look, if you feel that you're kind of on a roll right now professionally, maybe give it a shot. I, you, you don't need a college education to be a successful actress, you know, but that's, it's a wonderful thing to have, but it's also something you can come back in a couple of years and do if you want. That was the conversation I had. That was the last conversation I had with Marissa Tomei. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting. And then she went off to do this spinoff from the Cosby show. With Lisa so Burnett. you changed her life. Yeah, basically. Yes, that's it. I take complete credit for her talent and for her success. And I'm, I'm just waiting for her to at least acknowledge me at some point. I know, we'll maybe see. during her next Oscar speech, because she certainly omitted you and the other if one. If it wasn't yeah. for Vincent Irizarry, I yeah. might have that's gone right. to college. Exactly. That's right. She did her, my cousin Vinny, so she said, my friend Vinny. She can do that. Uh, next to the sequel to that. There you go. That's so yeah. funny. Um, all right, so... Lucky Chances is on is on the air. Little Mario Levinsky's yes. watching it, loving it, loving Vincent Arizari. Mm-hmm. And then in 1991, you come back to Guiding Light as Lou Jack's yeah. twin Nick. That I mean, I remember like it was yesterday when they announced it at the daytime Emmys and what a big deal it was. So how did the show get you back when you were on this great role, primetime yeah. wise and, and so forth? Well, it's interesting. I um Bob Calhoun was the producer of Guiding Light at the time, and I had worked with Bob. Um, he wasn't the executive producer when I was on. It was, it was Gail Colby, but he was under second under her at the time when I was Lou Jack. He had um, elevated to executive producer. He contacted me after Lucky Chances, um, and he wanted to talk to him about coming back on the show. And he was going to be in Los Angeles. Um, I told him, look, I, I don't, uh, this is probably not the time. I don't think it's going to happen now, but I'm happy to get together with him and just hang out and, you know, have lunch together or dinner. And we did, we got together and had some lunch and, um, and he talked and I said, well, first of all, you know, big obstacle, I died, <laughs> I died <laughs> on camera. Uh, yeah. Remember it was like uh, internal bleeding and I died right there <laughs> on camera. And he said, well, you know, we'll come up with something. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And I was like, all right, let's do it. You could you know, bandied around, see what happens. Um, but it wasn't the time. And I said to him, look, let's, let's reconvene months down the road and see what's going on. I did after lucky chances, I did a few guest spots, guest stars for some things. And again, I, I seemed like it just kept getting so close to some other roles and it just, I always lost out of it. I was too ethnic. I was too tall. I was too old. I was too young. It was, you know, that kind of a thing. It's kind of the, the plight of the actor. Um, so I, I, six months later, he and I had talked on the phone several times and I went back to, I was going back to New York. He asked me, when are you going to be around? Are you going to be in New York? I said, I'm coming back next week. So I met with him and, um, it was, it was James Riley. Was that the writer, the guy mm-hmm. that was for road passions? Yes. yes. It was James yeah, Riley he, at that time, yeah. along with Nancy Curley, I feel, and yes, uh, and he was he husband. was the head writer on Guiding Light right. when Bob Calhoun was was trying to get me back. So I met with them um, for uh, for drinks one night, um, one early evening. It was the three of us, and we talked and about about it again. And James was sharing some ideas, of possible stories to bring me back on. Um, and then, James, it was it was crazy because 
I came out to LA and then we decided to, all right, let's do it. And it's always, for me, it was always the same thing. Even though I was getting work occasionally here and there and things would come up and some were more significant roles like Lucky Chances was certainly one of those where I get a movie of the week, another one like, you know, Lying Eyes or something. It was the in-between time that I was kind of going crazy, you know, and I missed the steady work of working on a, a long running show constant, you know? So I missed that. And so I decided to go back to uh, um, Guiding Light. And I was on the phone, I had a conference call with, with Bob Calhoun and like the writing staff and we were throwing ideas around. Um, I kind of was interested in trying to find something like sort of the Manchurian candidate kind of thing with, um, with my mother, with Beverly, obviously, um, uh, with Alexandra. I thought that we, I had some ideas about that. So we were throwing some stuff around and it, this was the crazy thing because this has happened several times in my career. When I come back on a show or do something with a show similar to like with the Dobsons, <laughs> Bob Calhoun <laughs> is the one that hired me. We worked this out. It was almost like a year of us getting to the place where I decided to do it. Finally did it. The week that I started, the week before I started, Bob Calhoun stepped down as executive producer and Jill Phelps came on as executive producer. That is crazy. It is crazy. I never worked. I didn't get to work with Bob again. And I even I called him on the phone when I heard he was leaving. I said, are you serious? I said, we've been doing this for like a year. He says, yeah, I just felt it was time to step down. I said, yeah, but you're the one that was bringing me on. It was like. And I was grateful. At least I knew Jill and I, you know, I knew what she was capable of. And so, and we went and that was how I started back on Guiding Light again as Nick McHenry, which was an interesting name for the character. I always seem to get these, like these, I don't know, these kind of like uh, white bread Irish or, you know, something English, Anglo people names, you know, <laughs> Dr. Scott Clark and <laughs> Dr. David Hayward. And, you know, it's, it's and, and obviously McHenry. Um, so it, it's, it was, it was nice though. It was nice to come back and it was an interesting story, especially for that first year. Um, yeah, but it seemed like they, they went through several head writer changes at the time throughout the five years that I was back. And I felt it really started to become obvious to me that they were losing sight of the character, um, from writing staff to writing staff. And it, it became disheartening, frankly. And I remember going into the office to have conversations with several executive producers throughout the years because that had turned over as well, Michael Lapson and a few others. And I was constantly expressing my concern with how we seemed to be deviating from who the character was and it was becoming something other. And I was given assurances, no, 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 they're going to find their way back. Don't worry about it. And it just never did. So that was kind of frustrating. So it was time to leave when I did, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you uh, wound up on All My Children as Dr. David Hayward, which became your longest running soap role. Um, Yeah, yeah. So what would you say are the highlights of your Pine Valley run? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, as I said before, it was it it really started out as being like the All My Children fantasy camp, you know, going for three months, getting to play opposite everybody. I remember my first day walking into the um, makeup room and Ruth Warwick was there and I walked up to her and I, I mean, considering the fact that here she was, she was the last living member of the Mercury theater was on, you know, in citizen Kane opposite Orson Welles. And, you know, I mean, probably one of the top five films ever made in American history. Um, 
and I, it was just, I walked up to her and introduced myself to her and saying what an honor it was to be on the show with her. I didn't know if I was going to get to work with her. I did eventually. Um, and I, <laughs> this is a, <laughs> James Mitchell. Um, <laughs> this is a crazy story. When I was Lou Jack, all right. Um, back in, you know, back in the eighties, 84, 80, especially 84, 85, I was doing appearances every weekend. I was flying all over the country, which was pretty fantastic. As I, at that time before I started on Guiding Light, I had been on a plane once. I flew to Boston when I was like 11 or 12 years old. I won a trip through my paper route for Newsday that I got enough subscribers that I got to go to Boston with a group of other newspaper go boys. Go you. And, you should see our faces. Yeah. That's the cutest thing. <laughs> I did. I, I Because I, I, I got enough subscribers and I went a trip to Boston. It was my first time in an airplane. It was flying from LaGuardia. It's only a 40-minute flight, but from LaGuardia <laughs> to Boston. And I was in heaven. I was like, it was a cloudy day. And I remember flying above the clouds, but above the clouds, it was bright and sunny. And the clouds were like, the sun was like beaming off the top of the clouds. It looked looked like heavenly. I was like, oh my gosh, this is spectacular. I was in heaven and I it was just beautiful. But that was the last time I had been on a plane until I did Guiding Light. And then all of a sudden I was flying all over the country every weekend, going to cities and towns and every place all over. And I was it was great, but I was working so much at the time. I was working because the storyline really took off. So I was working five days a week, every week and getting, it was a lot of material and then traveling every weekend to do appearances. It was a lot, but just like, you know, the other actors working at that time, um, I I won't mention them, but we were, we were going out and partying a lot on Friday nights, a lot of us. Okay. And going out and probably staying out way too late and there was appearance, an appearance I had in New Jersey. To, so I considered that was like, that's okay. I can do it. I can go out and you know, have a few drinks and get a little crazy that night. I went home Friday night, late, probably like four in the morning, five in the morning, went to sleep. And then I heard people banging on my rooming house door because there was a limo downstairs waiting for me. And I hadn't woken up. And I was like, oh, crap. Jumped out of my bed, jumped in the shower, freshened up, cleaned myself up, went downstairs like a half an hour later, 40 minutes later. And I walk in the car and James Mitchell is sitting in the car. Oh, wow. And he's been sitting there the whole time. And I, even though I was not a soap watcher, I knew who he was. I knew he, who he was immediately. I remember that he was in the, the Nina and what is it? Storyline. Cliff and Nina storyline with him. He was the father of Nina. And uh, so I walked in, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he was like, it's all right. Just get in. Let's go. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and it was it was a long drive to Jersey. <laughs> I tried to, like, start up a conversation a few times with him. And he was OK. He was being gracious, you know, but I could tell it was not. He didn't like that. He had to sit in the car away for this young upstart actor for all these hours and for all this t- that time. So. When I go into the the makeup room that day, I see James Mitchell <laughs> sitting there. Now, just keep in mind, this is now 1997, so 14 years have passed, 13 years. So I walked up to James, and I said, "Oh, hi, James. Um, I don't. My name's Vincent. I don't know if you remember me." He goes, "Oh, I remember you." <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I said that bad, huh? It was an indelible impression I left upon you. Okay. 
I said, this is a good place to start. Well, good to see you again, James. <laughs> we, I, we actually laughed. And, and then we became really dear friends, actually, um, throughout the years. And I worked on the show, and he used, uh, and I used to go see Broadway shows together, go have dinner together. And um, What a, I just, what a I wonderful him. man he was. He really, really was. And I, I felt so protective of him, especially in the later years, because he had emphysema. And we had these scenes after this explosion that happened at a, a mass party. There was the one actually that was caught on videotape where the woman's hair caught on fire. Um, and it was this big explosion and he, his character and my character, we were stuck in some pod. It was like a collapsed part of the structure that was there. And we were stuck there and we had all these scenes for like two days and it was all this dust. And I was Ginger Smith um, the, one of the producers who I, whom I love as well, she, I was constantly saying to her, please have his, his tank up here, his oxygen tank, you know, in between scenes because it's so much dust. I was really concerned about him. Um, and she did, we, we had it up there cause it was, I was like, I can't believe that we wrote this like this, that he had to sit like this all day. And he was in his eighties at that time, you know, it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I did, I loved, I loved James. Um, and I, you know, that's what I even said even in my Emmy speech, I feel so grateful and blessed to have had the opportunity to work with so many amazing talents and veterans like James and David Keneary and, and Susan Lucci and, um, you know, Larry Gates and Beverly McKenzie, certainly. And I, I felt, especially in my early years with Guiding Light, that that was formative for me as a young actor. It was like, they were shining a light on how you were to conduct yourself as a professional in this medium. And I'm, and I'm forever grateful for that as well. I, they, it was, they were just wonderful people to watch and emulate and just to learn from. And they were just truly the salt of the earth. David Canary, I, I, you know, never have had I ever seen the guy ever act as a Devo in any moment while working on that show. He was not only a consummate professional, but he truly was a dear, dear man. And I miss him and I adored him. I remember my first scenes working opposite him. It was during that three month summer camp, <laughs> fantasy camp. And I got to work with him for five hours straight on like two episodes that we had done these, all these scenes where he was playing the dual characters of um, Stuart and Adam. And I got to watch him do those scenes as two different characters. And I walked out of there and I even said to a friend of mine, I feel like I just sat through a, a you know, a, a master class with this guy. It was amazing. Um, and I, and my relationship with him throughout the years, I just, I, I just, he, it, it never seemed for never for a moment that I ever see him just phone in for a second. He was just there always. And it was just fantastic. And uh, he deserved all the accolades he ever received throughout his life and honors that he received because he was brilliant. So, you know. And you got to bring Stuart back to life. I did. <laughs> I did. That's true. See, I see, I bet he talks about Dr. Evil. He was so evil, but he, and did yet good he, things. So, he, he, he was, he was a life giver. He gave <laughs> life to people and, 
you know, you think that the people of Pine Valley would have been a little bit more grateful, you know? Um, just... And lust. He did introduce libidazone to everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. He definitely did do that. So there were, there were the good things that people just overlook so easily, casually. You know, it's amazing. They want him in jail all the time. And then when they're in jail, they're begging him to come out to, like, you know, replace somebody's heart, you know, their daughter's heart or something. Or, like, bring I... their loved one back to life. Like, so selfish. Oh, I know. It's like, well, so you can't do this yourself? You need me to do that? Sure. Okay, just let me out of get these shackles off of me. I'll come out and take care of your daughter and give her a new heart. Yeah. So I'm with you. Just so so wrong. So yeah. <laughs> um we saw you uh next on, on Days of Our Lives as Deimos Kyriakis. Mm-hmm. And he stirred the pot on so many different fronts in the time that you were there. What what stands yeah. out to you about your time in Salem? You know, it's interesting because we're with Lou Jack with uh, David Hayward and with Deimos, I can't have greater um, examples of the importance of backstory for um, the, the strength of a character. They all, those three had that. And um, especially David Hayward's was interesting in that it was, it was formed in the process of it. And I, it was because at the time, as I said, it was a three month job and I left after three months. I don't know if you remember that. No, I do. Um, I hated they, it, but I remember it. Yeah. They, they, they offered me a long-term contract and I turned it down and it was not an easy thing to do because I had just, my daughter Aria was born. She was, I had a young baby now and um, I was leaving a job, a steady job. I was living in Los Angeles, working, uh, working on all my children in New York. Uh, what had happened, the reason why that even happened is that my daughter, Sienna, <clears throat> when I was doing Guiding Light as McHenry, <clears throat> as Nick, I was flying back and forth for all those years because my daughter, Sienna, lived in Los Angeles. And she was flying back and forth for years as well with a nanny every you know month. She'd come for like two weeks, month and a half to New York. So it was years of this. So when I finally left Guiding Light, I decided to leave. I moved to Los Angeles. And I was three blocks away from her. So I was able to take her to school every every day, and I was in her life and enjoying every second of that. And she was coming to stay with me. And it was it was so much more convenient, I was, and I loved it. So when I got all my children, the three month job, <clears throat> she had, I had, I told her, I sat her down, and said, I, I'm I'm taking this job in New York, and she kind of she got very emotional. And she said, Are you going to be gone again? And I said, No, honey, I promise you, I'm not. This is a three-month job, and you're going to come. We'll spend some time in New York too, and back. But it's it's quick, and I promise it's not. It's just a three-month gig. So when they came to me with a contract for three years, because they saw the potential of David Hayward, and I did too, it was obvious. I told I, uh, it was hard again because they were offering a great contract. It was three years, and had a newborn baby, and my agents they were negotiating it, and. And after a week of this, I finally walked into Jean Dario Burke's office and I sat down. And I said, listen, I can't take this job. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, I made a promise to my daughter. I said, I'm not I'm not going to move back to New York to be on the show. And my agents are calling me and said, what are you talking about? You're giving up a job. I said, I can't do that. I told my daughter I'm not going to do this and I can't do that to her again. I'm finally living right near her. So I left for five months <clears throat> and 
I came out to Los Angeles and I sat my daughter down and I wanted her to know that I, that this is what I had done. I said, listen, I made a promise to you and this is what I did. I had to do this because I promised you. But, and I told her, I can't make that promise all the time. I am because of my business. I might get a job in Chicago. I can get a job in Miami and Toronto. And there may be something that I have to do that. But this time I did promise you. So five months later, Judy Wilson calls me up and she's like, they really would like you on the show. What can we do to make this happen? And I said, I don't see how we can make this happen right now. She said, it was amazing. I love Judy, love her. And she's like, what about um, Signe, my ex-wife, Sienna's uh, mother? She said, Is she, would she be interested in doing any shows in New York? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm sure she would. She's not doing any jobs right now. She's doing other things. And she had she called the other shows. Guiding Light was casting at the time. Um, a re, it was a recast of a role. Annie, I think it was. It was Annie. Uh, yeah. And... She told them that Signe might be interested in doing this. They contacted Signe. They put her on tape in Los Angeles. They liked her enough. They flew her to New York to screen test there, and she got the part. So That's insane. Judy, Judy Wilson really was the, the, the mastermind of making all of these pieces come together. So <clears throat> Signe went to move to New York before I did, like literally <laughs> two weeks before with my daughter. I moved to New York two weeks later, started working on my children. My daughter was in Manhattan. I was living in Manhattan. And that's where that started. It was insane. And I, and I honestly, I felt like because I honored this promise to my daughter, it was almost felt like God had moved heaven and earth to make this happen. You know, <laughs> right? it was that kind of a thing that was so rare and unique that something like that could even happen. And that's how it started for 14 years. I was on the show as, as that. Back to the story. I'm sorry. I just deviated far from that. Um, you the asked me about Deimos. Yeah. Yeah. It, about Deimos and about that character. Um, I Again, the backstory for those. David Hayward didn't have much of a backstory when I first started those three months. It wasn't until I far, started um, working on the show and I started to realize that it, it, the character could become very short term unless we found a history for him because – at the moment, he had just gone to Springfield, not Springfield, to Pine Valley to, <laughs> I get them all confused. I've been in so many towns, and <laughs> fictional, fictitious towns. Um, he went to Pine Valley to get Allie back and that he had no ties to anybody else in Pine Valley except for Allie, he had no family, had no history. And I could see that the way they were writing it, that if he just becomes an irritant to the people of Pine Valley on a regular basis with no reason for finding out who he was, that's problematic. That becomes short term. Uh, people will be like, oh, I'm getting tired of this character. You have to give him some kind of history. So I went and spoke with Andrew Shapiro, who was the head of daytime for ABC at the time, and also Gene Burke. And we talked. We had a conversation. I said, we need to bring on some backstory for this guy. You need a history. Something with him, from someone from his past that knows him better than anybody else. Something, something to substantiate the reasons why he does the things he does. Otherwise, it's not going to last. And they came up with that brilliant idea of bringing on my mother, March Doucet again, and that my father had committed suicide. And I had watched this happen as an 11-year-old boy, that my mother had egged him on to commit suicide. And they had bled out of my arms, <clears throat> which basically for me as a doctor is that that was from that point on, he became this world-renowned 
cardiologist who was fighting death constantly because every time he saved a life, he was victorious over death and bringing back his father in part. So that that and also the hostility, the resentment he had for his mother that played out in his sort of malevolence. And I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. So Jamal, same thing. I, the backstory there was I loved it from the second that um, Josh Griffiths shared with me. I, I had the I came back. This was I was in New York when I got the call from my manager that um, Ken Corday and Josh wanted to have a meeting with me about this character and that they needed to see me on Friday because they were leaving for Fourth of July hiatus for a few weeks that the next day and that they were going to make a decision about this character. And it was between me and like three other people. And I was in New York on Wednesday when I got the call. I had to do standby flights on Thursday. And I sat through four flights where I could not get on. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I'm sitting there's a possible role and I'm not going to be able to get back there to meet with them. I finally got on the last flight, went to the meeting, had a great meeting with Ken and with Josh and with the with casting and a few other producers that were there. And only for like a half an hour, we were there talking for like a half an hour. And then I left and um, he shared with me the backstory. And I, it was fantastic that here was a guy that spent 30 years in jail. Um, he was framed by his brother for killing this woman that was he was in love with. They had an affair. The woman was engaged to marry the brother, with John Madison's character, <clears throat> Victor. And that the brother had found out, Victor had found out, and they fought. They were fighting. Why did people fight near a cliff? I don't know why, but they did. <laughs> Who she doesn't? fell off, and he set it up to make it look like I had killed her. So I went to jail for 30 years for the death of the first love of my life. And when I got out, I came to Salem to exact my revenge on my brother. I, that was a great backstory. I loved it. And, and then, you know, progressively, like, paralyzed his wife and took his company and <clears throat> everything. And people were like, Oh, once, once you do something to Maggie on that show, that's a problem because <laughs> the audience, she loves, she's like angelic to everybody. And, um, I, I loved working with her as well. She's fantastic. Uh, really. She's just, so sweet. Yeah, she is. And I love John Aniston. I love that. I had a chance to my first scenes on the show were with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love, I love him too. It was great. So anyway, so that was that story to get it all together. It really has to do with backstory. And I, I was really sorry that the character was written off. I, it was bizarre to me at the time. Um, I, in all honesty, I didn't understand it because the character really was doing very well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know there are reasons why <laughs> it happened. And it has more to do with politics than anything else. And not just with me, but a few other characters that were written off the show at the time. It was consistent that had taken place. Um, and I, and it's too bad. It's too bad. I mean, it, there were several ironies about it. It's right after I finished the show. It was like a, a week later, I got nominated for lead actor for the show. So I felt some sense of um, you know, affirmation of the character, what I was able to bring to the role and to the show. Um, yeah, there were some others that I don't need to get into, but it's just, it was, it was, it was sad. I was really sad because I loved working on the show. I loved the character and I certainly saw the character had so much more potential continued to be. Um, so that one was, uh, it was regretful that that happened. Uh, regrettable. Um, the, 
you know, but in all honesty, I, I fully understand this, that it's not my, it's not my show, it's their canvas, their palette, whatever they choose to do and use, it's their right to do it. So I don't, I'm not resentful or anything. I just was, it was saddened by it because I love the character. Yeah, it was so. a good one. Um, yeah. And for fear that anyone listening to this podcast thinks we skipped it for a reason, we did not ask you about YNR's David Chow and your, right. your visit to Genoa City. So tell us something about him. That's so funny. You know, interesting because we went from David Hayward then to Damos. And even I, I was like, going, I feel like there's something we're missing. <laughs> yeah, we're missing someone. <laughs> that says a lot about How my life. How can you forget Vincent Arizari as David Chow? David Chow. <laughs> That was an interesting one too. <laughs> that was crazy. Um, I yeah, and pe- people ask me all the time, "How are you, David Chow?" And I, I'm like, "I know it's strange. <laughs> I, I I didn't at first when I first got the job. It was again. It, I had just finished all my children. The first stint that was only for nine years, and I, I left the show. And it was like two weeks later, my manager called me again that Lynn Marie Latham had offered me the role of and of a role on the show that she had wanted to work with me. So it was a, it was a three month job again. And, um, I was like, Oh, great. Fantastic. You know, I just left all my children. Yeah. I'm, I'm there. And it was interesting because I had just had a meeting with Ellen Wheeler at guiding light at, it was that same week <clears throat> or two weeks before I had met with Ellen Wheeler. She, called and it invited me to come have a meeting with her about the possibility of bringing back Nick McHenry onto the show um, after all my children. And I, I went and met with her. We had a really nice meeting and it even was on the cover. It was crazy. I, I got the offer from Young and the Restless. Didn't know what the character was yet, but they offered me a job on there for three months. They said, they'll let me know, you know, they have the story, but they're going to let me know about the character. I said, sure. So did it about four days, five days before I was to leave to go to Los Angeles. The PR department had contacted me, said we're going to release it, that you're going to be on the show. And there's going to be an interview. I think it was with Michael Logan at the time. They wanted me to have an interview with him. And I said, okay, sounds great. I said, oh, by the way, what's my character's name? And they said, oh, it's David Chow. And I'm like, David Chow? <laughs> you mean like C-I-A-O? And they're like, N- no, C-H-O. I think it was O-W or just O. I don't remember. It was O-W. It was O-W. O-W, yeah, okay. Yeah, see, he does, I don't I have to write his name out very often. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the, um, so I was like, really? That's interesting. I said, is there a story about that? And she said, I don't know. That's what they gave me. That's what's on the paper here. I go, that's weird. David Chow. That's a different one. So Michael Logan asked me about the name and I said, I, apparently I was adopted by a Chinese family as a young boy. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how, I don't have McHenry, the answer to that. No, just like Nick was adopted by apparently an Irish family because he was adopted right. too. It all that's makes right. sense. That's it all it. comes back around. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, and I know it's, you don't hear a lot of, uh, a lot of Chinese people adopting, uh, uh, you know, American boys. <laughs> But it happens occasionally, I guess, because it seems like this was the outlier. Um, so I, um, yeah, so then I, I, when I started on the show, Lynn um, Relatham, she, she invited me to go to dinner one night. <clears throat> so uh, obviously I did. We had a really nice dinner together. We were sitting at this outdoor restaurant having a really nice dinner. And I said to her, okay, you got to tell me, how did I get the name David Chow? Where did this come from? 
And she told me it was an interesting story. She said what had happened was, and I'm trying to remember the story that the reason why my character was brought on because he was the boyfriend of a woman who had been killed on the show. Okay. And he came to town to find out who killed her. Okay. So, but when she was killed, there were the detectives that were going over the possible suspects and somebody had mentioned that she had a lover in another town. Okay. And the name of the lover was David Chow. And how that happened was that one of the writers on the show at the time, David Chow was a stuntman in the business for many years and apparently knew a lot of people. A lot of people had great respects for the guy and he was dying at the time in real life. And one of the writers was a dear friend of his and asked Lynn Marie before they were going to bring the character on, they had no intention of bringing the character on if she could give him the name David Chow, um, the lover. And she said, yeah, absolutely no problem. So they had the name on camera on an index card as possible suspects. And he was the lover from another town, David Chow. Flash forward a week or two later when they're asking well, we just hired Vincent Rosari. What role do you want to give him? And Lynn Marie, not thinking of the name of the character, said, oh, just make it Marie's um, lover from the other town. We'll bring him in. <laughs> Great. She did. Nobody said to her, you remember the name is David Chow, right? <laughs> so nobody, nobody said that to her. So she did that. And it was just, it, it was just, that was the way that it all worked out. So I was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> when she realized that they brought me on for this character, that the character was David Chow had already been established on camera, there was nothing they could do about it. Um, That's a sweet then, tribute though. I know it was a very sweet tribute, but then they changed my name. I don't know if you remember I was going to say this. So they, they named you Angelo. Right? Angelo, something, something like Angel of Darkness or something. It was just, <laughs> it, it, it's like, it was, it was Angelo, oh, oh my gosh, of something. Serafini? That's what Serafini, yes. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah, yes. Um, Sarah is, is evening, um, end of night. And so Angel of the of Darkness, basically, Angel of the End of Night. Serafini, I think you're right, Serafino. Um yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, and that was at the end. This is right before my character died. That they decided, well, he was in he was incognito, <laughs> or he was like he was using a pseudonym, I guess, or he didn't want people to know that he was Angelo Serafini. So he gave himself the name David Chow, not to draw attention to himself. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> that's funny. You know, that of really all is. of all the loose ends that soaps leave, they had to address your name. It's hilarious. I know. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. I just can't believe that. That's so weird. But it was sweet though, because I even I I asked Lynn Marie. I was like, and she was so I I was so grateful to her that she brought me on, and and she said, you know, this is how this happened. She said, back in the early '90s, I had auditioned for a nighttime series called Homecoming. I think it was called. It was a series that was on for a few years. Yeah. Um, about people, um, people coming back from the war in World War II mm -hmm. and reestablishing themselves in their communities and flashbacks. It was it called Homefront? Homefront or something like that. It was Homefront or, yeah, I don't remember the exact name, but it was that. And she was one of the producers on the show. And she said that I had auditioned for it. And there were several people from those auditions that she always remembered she wanted me for that role, but I didn't get past 
agreed upon by the people at the network. They wanted somebody else. So somebody else got the part. But she had always wanted to work with me. And she said David Schwimmer was another person that auditioned for that at the time and for another role um, and that he didn't get it. Um, so I don't know whatever happened to him, but he, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but so she said that and I was like, wow, that was, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it was like, this was 2006 at the time. That was like in the early nineties, maybe 93 or something. It was probably right as soon after lucky chances, maybe. Um, so that she said she had always wanted to work with me. And when, the, when the, that became available, she made the call and said, bring him on. I want him to come on the show. So that was sweet. That's was very really sweet nice. I loved yeah. it. I loved that show, by the way. I'm sorry you weren't on it. I was a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. That's good. I, I didn't get to watch much. I think I've watched the first episode just to get a sense of what it was. Mm -hmm. um, you never know when you might get a call and say, you know, we have another role for you. And so just so you get an understanding Smart. of how the show works, you know, so, so it's cool. So, Vincent, when you think back on all these names that we've just talked about, <laughs> Lou Jack, Scott, Nick, yeah. David, David, Damos, is there a mm -hmm. particular role or a particular show that you would say is closest to your heart ultimately? Well, I would say that, um, well, Lou Jack, kind of interestingly enough, I felt was closest to me um, as, as who I am and certainly who I was as a young man. Um, I felt that there were a lot of parallels with Lou Jack um, and myself in my life. <clears throat> um, I, I felt like I had much more of an affinity towards that character than any other, but I would certainly say that in significance, um, David Hayward was the, was the first character that rivaled Lou Jack um, for me and excitement and playing the character and, and the development of that character. But obviously it was 14 years compared to two years, which is kind of amazing. And still to this day, people call me Lou Jack on the street and it was a two year <laughs> role and they can't remember the next character I came on, it was Nick McHenry, which was five years. Um, I, it's kind of funny. It's um, like, there's no other Lou Jack. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Like one of my and I, and I, I know that's true. That's true. So I, and I loved, and I did love playing Deimos um, because I, 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 you know, certainly he, I felt he was justified in his resentment, his anger, his desire to exact the revenge against his brother. I felt that for what had happened. Mm -hmm. He had 30 years of his life taken from him. He was thrown into a, a prison for 30 years and, you know, the last woman that he had been in love with was the woman that was killed. So I saw there was a romantic quality to him underneath the surface of his anger, his resentment towards his brother. And I loved that Ken Corday asked if I'd be interested in playing piano um, on the show. And I did, I played like six classical pieces while I was on there and it had been years since I played classical. And I told him, absolutely, I'll do it. But, <clears throat> don't tell me in a week that you need me to learn a <laughs> Chopin waltz because it's not going to happen. So give me at least a month anytime I'm going to play something. And I, and he did, they did. And I, and they had a piano there was in, <laughs> I was going into the prop room every day after my scenes and practicing on the piano in the prop room um, just to get it, you know, so I can feel like it was solid enough to be for performance. <laughs> and I did that for like six months for the different, different songs that I played, but I felt that <clears throat> that brought another level, another dimension to the character, um, some depth to him. 
I, I did. I love the character. And I, so those characters, for those reasons, I feel are closest to me. And, and David too, I, I think David, even though he had his nefarious deeds that he did on a regular basis, he was broken. You know, there was a real brokenness about him. And I, I think that's what I identified with because it brought his humanity out. And I always found it as very kind of, um, I, I, I felt uh, that it gave me some sense of satisfaction that even while he was doing all these malevolent deeds uh, and like destroying people's lives, that I was able to at least get enough empathy from the audience that at times they stayed were on my side. I thought it was really funny <laughs> that they would that they would feel that I was more justified than Joe Martin, who was like the you know the <laughs> paragon of virtue on the show, and but they felt that he was in the wrong and that I was in the right, even though I was like destroying somebody's life. So I thought that was pretty cool that I was able to get at least enough bring enough humanity of the character, enough of his brokenness to the point where the audience would understand why he was doing what he was doing and then stand up for him. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. I mean, Vincent, we really could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> like you have such good stories. No, this is a long um, one. I, I don't know <laughs> where you're going to air this one. This is very long, but yeah. You know, people are going to love it. It's like, so you have such great stories and you're just such a, a big part of our community. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, you know, it has been such a great uh, blessing to be in this medium for as many years. So like I said, the irony, it doesn't escape me of walking through my grandparents' living room and watching them watch it and then seeing my brother and sister as like losers just sitting there watching <laughs> soap operas. I've spent like 40 years in this medium. I'm like, okay. They got the last right. laugh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. But it's like, sometimes it's like the way life works is like, maybe you don't know what's best for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been great. It's been a wonderful run. And I'm so, I'm so grateful to be working again to work on Bold and Beautiful, which is a beautiful show. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I remember years ago when they won their first best show. Um, I remember cause I had watched those shows that year, um, screeners for consideration and, uh, voted on it. And I thought the show was fantastic at that time and it was great to see because I felt like the show really came into its own, you know, and, um, you know, any new show, it takes a while for the legs to get, you know, steady. And, um, so that year they definitely had the best show. There was no question on every level, story, performance, lighting, camera. It was like, it was a beautiful show. It was, they were tight shows. Um, so it was great. It was, you know, I mean, given the fact that we're living at a time where this medium, I sometimes, I, I parallel with kind of this crazy game of musical chairs, you know, mm-hmm. it's like every once in a while the music stops and another chair is ripped away quickly, you know? And since I started on in gay time in 83, I think there may have been 12 shows at that time, if I remember. And mm-hmm. and they had a few that had left right before me, like Search for Tomorrow and Edge of Night had just gone off the air um, and the doctors. Um, so to watch it dwindle down to four shows in all these years and but to see that a show that had started 32 years ago, I think it's been now, um, and to see that they were able to get their sea legs and keep it going and and 
uh, and become very successful at, that's very good. That's wonderful. I think oh, it's wonderful. Absolutely. Um, against all odds, frankly, um, given the fact that this medium has been struggling, you know. And so, they're doing amazing right now. So it's like you're on at a yeah. really high point as well for the show. Yeah, yeah. And it's been, you know, I'm so grateful that people have been so welcoming to me, fans as well as as the people in the show. And I, it's it's great. We'll see where it goes. We'll see where it develops. I don't know. Well, you know, we look forward yeah. to seeing that. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank have, you, Vincent. Have a great trip. Yeah, thank you, Sevi. Thank you, Mara. It was a pleasure. Blessings to you both, okay? And to you. Talk and to, to you, you soon, Vincent. Bye, guys. Thanks, bye. bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Vincent Irizarry for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. I never, ever thought I would open a business for myself. And then I had a baby. Meet Patrice Mousseau, founder of Satya Organics, a skincare company created for people with skin issues, powered by Shopify. When Esme was about eight months old, she developed eczema. The doctor's only option to me was steroid creams. I just started experimenting in my kitchen crock pot. I actually found something that cleared her eczema up in two days. After about a year or so of just selling it out of my kitchen window, I decided to make a business out of it. Shopify templates are fantastic and their customer service is absolutely stellar. You can buy Satya online, you can buy it in stores, you can buy it on our social channels, and that's all made possible by Shopify. When you're ready to share your business with the world, grow it on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform trusted by millions of businesses like Satya. Get a free 14-day trial at shopify.com slash free22 and start selling wherever your customers are with easy-to-use tools and friendly 24-7 support. Go to shopify.com slash free22, shopify.com slash free22.